I'm Danny Rivero, and this is a special live edition of WLRN's podcast, Detention by Design, here in our WLRN studios in downtown Miami. In 1955, according to the federal government, there were only four immigrants in detention in the entire country. If you listen to the WLRN podcast, Detention by Design, you're familiar with this number and how it slowly but surely crept up since the 1970s, starting with a wave of Haitian and Cubans who came to the U.S. on homemade rafts. By last month, there were over 20,000 immigrants in detention held per day, according to the federal government. And this number has ebbed and flowed a lot over the last few years, reaching a peak of more than 50,000 in 2019. In Detention by Design, we explored the origins of the system, but even over the last few weeks, this system has changed dramatically. Stay tuned to this live special on WLRN, and we'll get into it after the news. I'm Danny Rivero, and this is a special live version of WLRN's podcast, Detention by Design, here in our WLRN studios in downtown Miami. Welcome to our live audience and to all of you joining who will be watching on the live stream and on social media platforms. <laughs> so over the last few years, and especially over the last few months, the number of people showing up to the U.S. border with Mexico has surged. That includes people like Gilbert John, who came here from Haiti. Gilbert traveled through 10 countries and faced off with organized gangs in 2021 while trekking through the infamous Darien Gap, the jungle between Panama and Colombia. My colleague WLRN's Wilkin Brutus, sitting right here, recently spoke with Gilbert. They stole my phone, they stole my money, they beat my head with the butt of a gun. I went through a lot of suffering, but the most important thing for me was to arrive at the border. Jean is now living here in Florida with the help of his family, but he came across the U.S.-Mexico land border. In recent months, the number of Cubans and Haitians coming to the U.S. by sea has significantly increased. And it's a moment that in some ways brings us full circle to the origins of the modern U.S. immigration system, which, of course, was the focus of the Detention by Design podcast. And that's going to be the focus of the special that brought us together today. Joining us now to talk about this current wave of migration is Gypsy Metellus, the executive director of the St. La Haitian Neighborhood Center. And also joining us is Randy McGrory, the executive director of Catholic Legal Services in Miami. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank, Thank you. you, Danny. So Gypsy, let's start with you. Um, we know that a large number of Haitians have been coming to the U.S., especially after the assassination of President Jovenel Moïse in 2021. And, you know, since then, the total breakdown of the constitutional order in that country. When something like this happens, how does it specifically impact an organization like yours in the city of Miami? Thank you, Danny. So for us, it's really deja vu all over again, right? And remember that this recent crisis isn't the first experience that we've had in this community with Haitian migrants coming to South Florida, right? We can go back to 1972, which is really the formal, the, the December 12, 1972 is the formal recognized documented date of the first boatload of 34 Haitian refugees who arrived on Pampano Beach, right? 
but we've had successive waves of Haitian migrants, Haitian refugees coming on shore. And it's been the same story. That migrant, that, that, that migration, those waves of migrants coming are all linked to a situation, a socioeconomic situation in Haiti, right? A situation of a repressive government or a dictatorship back prior to 72 under the Duvalier dictatorship. And it continued with repression, you know, a, a really extractive state, an extractive economy, and a state that does not invest in its citizens, right? Had the resources given, provided by friends and so-called friends, whatever you want to call it. Uh, uh, so investments that were not invested where they should have been, a population that's been left to fend for itself. And, and speaking of, of today, um, in some ways it's a similar but different situation because the problem facing Haiti is where is the government? There, there doesn't seem to be a government. And it, it, the, the result is mass migration in the same way. But my question is, on the Florida side of the, of the water, how is your organization, how are you impacted by all this happening? You know, our organizations are wading through this recent crisis, right, as we have in the past, right? So it's been an effort by multiple organizations, Saint La, Farm, Catholic Charities, Catholic Legal Services, and many others trying to come together, pull resources, strategize, be very, very uh, strategic in how we approach this and how we assist and how we get the resources to assist, how we help our community at large understand what's happening. Because again, you know, South Florida residents are very generous. And this generosity has been proven to us day in and day out. And we want them to understand the root cause of this recent migration, such that as we reach out to them for support, financial and otherwise, they understand why. They understand what's causing this migration. And they understand why we're asking them to support. And Randy, I want to, I want to go to you now. Um, you're in the legal community, um, which is a very important nexus for all these questions of, of migration. Um, as I mentioned at the beginning, we were seeing a large number of, of Cubans and, and Haitians especially appearing at the U.S.-Mexico border and also recently coming by boat into Florida. Florida Keys is kind of ground zero, but it's happening all over. Um, what is the overall legal picture for what is happening to migrants that, that come specifically by boat? So. One thing I do just want to address is the fascination that we as a community and the press has with the recent boat arrivals. In legal terms, they're called uh, irregular maritime arrivals. Um, and people have been focusing on that, right? We saw recently that uh, the governor of Florida is sending the National Guard there. Um, it's captivated the imagination. And I just want to set the record straight that we are at nowhere near record levels of boat arrivals. We're nowhere near the levels of arrivals in the 1990s and the early 2000s. So that needs to be said um, because I think that we don't want to perpetuate a narrative where people have this image that are, the shores of Florida are being uh, bombarded and by uh, by various groups right so it's important to remember that but it has these, these advanced. Are, it has it has increased mm -hmm. 
and it's, it, it certainly has increased over the last number of years because we haven't seen boat arrivals, and there are some reasons for that. Um, the war on drugs led to intense vigilance and uh, law enforcement patrol of the Straits of Florida, so fewer and fewer people were, boats were getting through. Also, 9-11 increased the vigilance on our borders, and in particular, the Straits of Florida. So as that avenue was closed, window clo door was closing, um, a new window popped up from the southern border. So both Haitians and Cubans were then redirecting themselves to attempt to cross the southern border. So we are seeing some. Um, what is happening to them? It, mostly, um, you might recall, and others listening might recall a, a practice that we had called wet foot, dry foot. Right. They've sort of readopted that. Um, so most of the boat arrivals, if they make it to the shore, are processed through something called expedited removal. Those that don't are transferred to a Coast Guard cutter and repatriated, both to They're Cuba and They're brought back to their Haiti. country of origin. That's right. right. So what is supposed to happen under expedited removal, um, each individual, if they express a fear of return, are supposed to be provided something called a credible fear interview. It's a lower standard than proving the legal claim of political asylum. Um, if they meet that threshold finding, they're then allowed into the United States to pursue the full asylum claim. I can tell you that that is not happening. Uh, the people that we have seen who have been released be, um, have all been given something called an expedited removal order. That only happens if you failed your credible fear, but credible fear was never uh, provided to them. So it was a missing step, essentially. Yes. Gypsy, I want to go back to you. Um, a few weeks ago, my colleague Tim Paget was in the Florida Keys doing some reporting on boats that were landing at the time. And he spoke to a Cuban woman who lives in Miami called Jennifer Garcia. And she was in the Keys trying to track down family, a family member who was coming over by boat. She didn't know if this family member arrived. I want us to listen to a second to, to what Jennifer said. Yo creo que debería haber un, una carta, una, una lista para las personas que están buscando su familiar. I think there should be a list for the people who are looking for family members. For example, a list of names of all the people who have made it to land. That way the families who are desperately waiting for news about whether a family member made it or didn't make it, or if they were returned, if they died. The families who are here waiting for some type of news. The governor should at least put out a list of names. <laughs> So speaking to, to what Jennifer mentioned, I mean, what, what do her frustrations tell us about how things are being communicated to family members on this side looking for questions, whether someone comes by boat or they cross the border? Well, Jennifer's completely right. That it would be the humanitarian thing to do to sort of erect some sort of list that enables family members, relatives to at least be prepared, right? But let me tell you. What's happened here is just history repeating itself, and particular in the case of Haitians, right? Because there's a long tradition of our government's attempts to detain, deport, deny opportunities to make a credible, to, to, to make a credible case, you know, for why they shouldn't be repatriated. And all of these have been 
designed, if you will, to deter the arrival of Haitians. And this is, there's a long history of this, and particularly where Haitians are concerned, from the 1972 boat load to the Carter administration's response, the Reagan administration's response, the Bush administration's response, the Clinton administration's all, all response, Obama, et cetera, up to now, right? The United States policy vis-a-vis -vis Haitian refugees, I can describe it as schizophrenic at best, right? It changes every time there's a wave of migrants coming in, right? Do we give them refugee status? Oh, no, we can't do that. Let's give them entrance status, which was Carter's response, right? And so again, time and again, it is about not wanting this, this group of people to come in, and I, I'll say it honestly, it's all caused or due to the racism, the discrimination, the, the xenophobia, the fear that Haitians are the worst migrants ever, right, who are going to drain our institutions, our systems in the worst ways. And all of this over years have been, has been proven untrue. Right? And so I think it's an opportunity for us to reshape the narrative, right? Help people understand, again, the root causes of Haitian migration. Help people understand how our government has responded to, to entrants and refugees, and particular, the disparate treatment of Haitians uh, when compared to Cubans, or you know, years ago, to the way that Indo-Chinese refugees were treated, or uh, you know, other refugees throughout the years. Well, we're we're going to get into this. We're going to take a short break now. We'll be right back. Gypsy Randy, please stick around. Um, we'll see you in a second. I'm Danny Rivero. Welcome back to a special live version of the WLRN podcast, Detention by Design, here in downtown Miami. And we return now to our conversation with Gypsy Metellus, the executive director of the Haitian Neighborhood Center, Saint La, and Randy McRorty, the executive director of Catholic Legal Services in Miami. Following up on our earlier conversation um, and bringing things to where they are today, very recently, the Biden administration, just two weeks ago, announced a brand new parole program which on its face will allow 30,000 monthly people to be paroled into the United States from Cuba, Haiti, and Nicaragua, um, which is modeled after Venezuela. what the federal government already did with Venezuelans. Um, Randy, I have a, a question to you about the kind of the reasoning which goes to what Gypsy was just talking about. Um, and it requires us to go back. So in, in 1980, Jimmy Carter gave a speech at the Fountain Blue Hotel in Miami Beach talking about the Marielle boat lift and the, surge of, and the surge of Haitians that were coming to Florida by boat then. And I included this in a, in a part of the podcast, Detention by Design. Let's listen briefly to what Carter said in 1980. We didn't anticipate it. Our laws were not designed to accommodate three or four thousand refugees coming here per day. Our laws were designed for people to be screened in a foreign country, carefully cataloged and brought here a few at the time. This just didn't happen. So, Randy, my, my question to you after the announcement of this parole program, which is, you know, a big program on, it, on its face, is 
Is the federal government doing now what President Carter was talking about, what didn't happen in 1980, which is processing people overseas instead of having them come to the, the front door of the United States? It's important to remember that the legal posture that President Carter described in 1980 is exactly the same as now. We still don't have the legal capacity and the legal tools to process people on a large scale. So this administration, I think, has tried to be very creative in looking at the border. They're understanding that, so in, in, in immigration policy, they always look at two factors when it comes to the movement of peoples. The push factor, what's driving people away from their home country, and the pull factor, why are they coming here specifically? Right. Our response has always been to look at the pull factor and to make our laws harsher and more difficult so that keeps people out. You know, recently, if I can just go into Title 42 a little bit, we have this the, mental the image. Era policy. We have this right. mental image of Title 42 as a force field protecting our border, right? So it it came about um, several years ago in response to the pandemic, and it is not part of our immigration law. It's a public health provision that allows us to protect us from <laughs> infectious diseases, right? So this was applied. That is no longer the case, but Title 42 is there, and it's, it's in everyone's imagination. Um, you know, we have very strong laws protecting our border called expedited removal. If Title 42 goes away tomorrow, um, the force field isn't down and we're not going to be surged. What people need to understand is we have to focus on the push factors, and this is very important. So I want to give you an example that's near and dear to our community. So over the last 50 years, about 10% of the population of Cuba has come to South Florida. The same period, about 10% of Central America, 10% of Haiti has also come to the United States. Cuba and Cubans who arrive, at least in the orderly process, uh, have access to one of the most permissive immigration laws anywhere on the books in the world. They arrive here, they're processed in a year and a day, they get a green card and are on their way to citizenship. I, I, I will add, no. that, that's, that's what it is on paper, but a lot of people are being processed differently. Correct, even though and that's Cuban recent. Nationals. But let me go back yes. to the point of push factors um, versus pull factors. Central Americans, Haitians, have had always a historically very difficult process of staying here. Yet the numbers are equivalent, so what's happening push factors. So take the case of Haiti, for example. Um, I, I'm, I'm sorry to interrupt, but I yeah. want to go back to what, I was, to what my original question was. It seems that the Biden administration, in an attempt to get away from the imagery of a crowded border and of boats newly coming into to, to Florida, it seems that they are trying to be creative and in incentivizing people to stay in their countries. Right. And, pro and process them there instead of having the imagery of Biden lost control of the border. So I, I think that it's a very creative response. And I think what they are doing is acknowledging what I'm saying, which is what is most determinative of people's migration is the push factor. And push factors are not gonna be changed overnight. So this is what they're hoping. That person who's in Haiti, um, is, is desperate, 
and knows they have to get out of there for many reasons. Um, and so do they get on a boat, which we all know is very dangerous, the lost lives is, is well documented, mm -hmm. or do they go through this process um, and come here in an orderly process? There are some concerns. It's, it's a new program. Um, it is not flawless, um, but it is an attempt to address the push factors in each country. Mm -hmm. And um, Gypsy, on the, on the other side of it, there's family members that are waiting for their loved ones. Um, it, for this new parole program, many of them are starting to sign up as sponsors. Mm -hmm. um, we've seen images in Port-au-Prince, for example, of long, long lines, lines at the at U.S. The, Embassy. At the immigration with, with, office to obtain passports. So there is obviously a demand for this kind of thing. Um, people don't want to risk their lives and, and take to the seas for no reason. We know it's not for no reason. Um, but on the, on the Florida side of it, I'm curious, are you hearing from families that are going through this process of, of trying to, <laughs> to become sponsors? And like, what's the impact on, on families that are going through this? Unfortunately, there are so many Haitians and Americans of Haitian descent who want to serve as sponsors to their friends, family members in Haiti. Because remember, this parole program uh, does not require that you be related by blood to the person you're sponsoring, right? So there are a certain number of conditions that need to be met by the sponsor. This, is, this does not provide to the newcomer a pathway to legal status in this country. It's just a two-year reprieve, maybe with a, with a work permit. And then, of course, at the end of two years, we don't know what's going to happen. So in my view, this is not the help Haiti needed, right? So yes, there are going to be people, hopefully they have a cell phone because things have to be downloaded, right? And so already you're talking about flaws in this program in terms of who is going to actually be able to access. But, but that's, another, that's another story, right? So for me, uh, it would have been best to maybe invest in Haiti, invest in securing the country, invest in... A, assisting the Haitian government, right? Wait, or assisting government? Haitian civil society and addressing their needs on the ground, right? So maybe this, this could have been an investment in agriculture. This could have been an investment in public works. This, could have been in, this should have been an investment in education and in healthcare, right? Instead of having all these Haitians just dream of the day that they can leave Haiti for the United States on a temporary basis and turn away and look away from the fundamental issues in the country. Gypsy's absolutely correct about that. This is not meant, uh, so it does not address the root causes of migration. What it does is acknowledge them and- Keeps people from flocking to the border. From, from mm -hmm. dangerous routes. Uh, this is about the border. Um, and the reality is, as, as we talked about earlier, we haven't had an updated comprehensive immigration reform to our laws mm -hmm. since really the 1960s. Um, so this administration is using what tools they can, but this program is about the border and nothing more. It, it does not address root causes of migration. That's correct. And Randy, I want to ask you, um, as I mentioned, this new parole program was modeled after a similar one that was implemented with Venezuelans. Venezuelans were arriving to the U.S.-Mexico border in huge numbers. A couple months later, the federal government says, we started this program, 90% de decrease in people showing up to the, to the U.S.-Mexico border. My question to you is, 
you mentioned earlier that there's concerns about about this this program. Um, I have seen some concerns from other legal experts about what this means in general for the right to ask for asylum in, in many methods, which is a right. So please expand on it. Sure. So as Gypsy mentioned, this is a two-year program. It's a promise to allow you into the United States and provide work authorization while you can pursue some kind of means to adjust your status. That might be through family members with existing petitions. That might mean filing a, um, an asylum claim. It might mean being the beneficiary of an employment petition. So, and I want to talk about that a little bit really quickly. Um, we have a shortage of employees, particularly in South Florida. Um, they need workers. And when I talk to the business community about the potential that they can sponsor individuals, it's not just uh, individuals. Oh, they're interested. It, they're it, interested. it is also entities, nonprofit groups. Mm -hmm. They're excited about this prospect because they're coming to work for two years. Now, it's right. It's in two years increment. The reality is that in two years, in January of 2025, we might have a different administration who might have a very different view of this population and might seek to deport them. But there will be avenues for them to pursue. One is asylum, another are family petitions. And if they're Cuban, they have access to the Cuban Adjustment Act. They will enter as parolees, which then allows them to uh, submit an application for permanent residency after a year and a day. And thank you for that. Um, Gypsy, I mean, one of the things that's important about this program is that it does provide, even if it's for two years, the right to work, and a lot of people that, that show up, if they don't have this kind of parole status, they can't work. So what, I mean, what's the importance of the ability to work for someone that's just coming in, you know, especially in terms of taking some of the burden off of the family members that are sponsoring them, maybe? You know, Haitian migrants, Haitian immigrants in general, you know, are always motivated by employment. So they want to, they want to be, uh, they want to have the opportunity to earn a living they want to be able to support themselves, support family members and relatives back in Haiti, right? And so that's always going to be a strong pull factor for folks, right? And so, you know, I don't want to deny anybody the opportunity to, to have this two-year reprieve, but I'm just looking long-term. What does this really do? How does this really assist this population or the country and addressing the fact that there is no functioning government, right? It's a country in chaos. There's no security. Gangs are running amok, right? The conditions in Haiti right now are ripe for everyone to try to flee. Is that possible? 30,000 a month, three countries. So, by the way, the, the 200,000 that have come to South Florida alone in the last 18 months, virtually none of them have work authorization. And that's another issue. This is why that's I brought it up. a very important issue this that is we need to address. Um, Randy, I mean, I imagine you interact with the federal government in, to, to some capacity in, in your legal work and also with families trying to go through this. Um, if someone is out there listening and they, they're thinking about becoming a sponsor, what should they know about the process? So, uh, it's all done online. It's accessed through a portal on USCIS.gov, and um, it's a form called a 134A, 
and they're going to ask some information about the sponsor. I'd mentioned entities are allowed to sponsor people. Um, the reality is that an individual from the entity has to fill out the form. So that individual is going to be vetted somewhat um, because we want to make sure that human traffickers mm -hmm. aren't bringing people over. Um, they have to make some promises to the federal government that this person won't become a public charge while they're here, that they'll provide food, uh, basic housing, and health, health, healthcare. And, and healthcare. Um, so beyond that, the process can happen very quickly. We've already seen some people arrive through this program. To here in South Florida? To here in South Florida. Um, there are people in our office right now um, who've arrived. Mm -hmm. And they just announced that two weeks ago. That's, yes. that's so they're, they're working very hard. As I said, this is not um, a humanitarian program. Mm -hmm. It is an immigration program to address the border. The border. Mm -hmm. Right. And sure enough, there are, you know, on my, on my team, I know that just about everybody potentially could sponsor five, six, seven people, or at least uh, they're being requested to sp for sponsorship. Um, Randy, I want to ask you another question, um, and this is like taking a small step back or a you know, bird's eye view, um, because so much of the podcast that, I, that, that we did here was talking about the origins of the detention system, which is one part of what's going on. A question I have, and it's been a little bit hard to, to find the details on, is not just the people that have come in the last couple of weeks, but in general, over the last few months, like what is happening to people on a large scale? Are they being hmm. paroled in? Are they being detained for a few days? Are they being released to family members? Like what is a typical process, not this parole program, right. but so, otherwise? So the irregular maritime arrivals, the rafters, are handled one way. And as I mentioned, if they reach the shores, uh, they're then processed by CBP, typically released. Typically, sometimes they're placed into removal proceedings, again, in detention where they can speak with a judge and try to make a claim for asylum. At the border, they are doing things very irregularly. They're not complying with the law. Um, they're releasing people in all kinds of manners. Now, I'm, I'm very thankful that they're releasing people in one hand because most of these people will face persecution if returned home. Um, however, the manner that they're being released in is highly irregular and doesn't comply with our law. They're, they're supposed to be given credible fear interviews, uh, as I mentioned earlier, and released with a parole. That parole allows them to work. That's not being done. Mm -hmm. They're just being released. Sometimes and, and there's I, no paperwork. And I, I, I do want to mention because... Cuban nationals in some ways have a leg up because if they are released on parole, they can apply for permanent residency. But from what I've heard talking to people, including people close to my family that have gone through this recently, they are not being released on parole. They're, that, being, they're just being released, but it's not, they don't have that year and a day benefit that Cubans have had for a long time. So parole is increasingly being provided um, that is a shifting policy that is addressing that. But of the, of the 200,000 that are here in South Florida, I would say maybe a, less than a third actually have the parole. Um, so you're right. The other thing that they're doing that is a little bit um, troubling and they could fix very easily, they're releasing them when they do parole 
for a two-month parole or a two-week parole or a two-day parole, the length of time is not sufficient for them to get work authorized because their work authorization will run the same length as the parole. Mm -hmm. So they'll never be able to work. Gypsy, I want to ask you a question. Um, mm -hmm. You know, this is a two-year program. You alluded to it a little earlier. What's going to happen after two years? And I, I suppose, I don't know if we know. Um, and it makes me wonder if we're going to have a similar situation with temporary protected status. Um, a variety of countries, the nationals get TPS. It is temporary protected status, but in reality, it goes up to renew every couple of years and there's a fight about it and it becomes almost de facto permanent because the federal government doesn't want to deport people. Um, do you suspect this could be something that's temporary in name but could be permanent, you know, years down the road? You know, if history is a guide, that's very likely. But I think that, you know, we and the advocacy community are going to have to double down on on working with partners, allies, to really go for a, a, an extensive immigration reform, such that you know, this migration crisis that we're facing, whether it's in South Florida or other parts of the country, that you know, we can address this once and for all. Otherwise, we'll be renewing TPS here in two years. We'll be maybe extending this parole program. And in the meantime, people's lives will remain in limbo the community will be pressured to address the immediate needs of these people. And I'm talking about institutions from the school district to the hospitals, et cetera. We're going to be challenged to take care of these people because they're in our community, right? And so I think the one and only way out of this predicament is that we really insist that our elected leaders, our congressional leaders focus on comprehensive immigration reform once and for all. Because this piecemeal, schizophrenic <laughs> approach is leading us nowhere. And that is a conversation for another time. Um, Gypsy Metellus is the executive director of the Haitian Neighborhood Center, Sant La. And also joining us here was Randy McGrody, the executive director of Catholic Legal Services in Miami. Thank you both so much for being here. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Still to come, on a live special of the WLRN podcast, Attention by Design, we're looking back at the last 50 years to get a better understanding of the current waves we're seeing in South Florida of migration. We'll be right back. I'm Danny Rivero. Welcome back to a special live version of WLRN's podcast, Attention by Design, here in our WLRN studios in downtown Miami. <laughs> So as we explored in the final episode of the podcast series, the current situation with boats showing up to South Florida is a continuation of a narrative that stretches back 50 years. Uh, it was 50 years ago when the first boat of Haitians arrived to Florida in this way. Um, to help give us some historical context about what's going on today, we're joined right now by Tim Paget. He's the America's editor for WLRN. And we're also joined by Dr. Jorge Duani, the director of FIU's Cuban Research Institute. Tim and Jorge, thank you so much for coming on. Sure, thank, thank you. Good. Tim, let's, let's start with you. You've, you've covered Latin America for decades and how, and how it intersects with 
the U.S. and, and now Florida. Um, and you covered the, you know, the, the rafter crises of the 1990s, 90s, right? um, where there was a large number of Cubans and Haitians leaving irregularly to the state of Florida, which itself was a repeat of the 1980s. Um, from your perspective, because you do have some real perspective on this, is there anything that has been different about this wave that we've seen? Well, the main thing that's different is the degree of desperation. It's much higher, much higher than even, I would say, you know, during the special period, as we called it in Cuba in the 1990s, that was forcing so many Cubans uh, to leave. The ec economic deprivation back then was awful because the Cuba had just lost its economic patronage from the Soviet Union. Uh, there was, you know, as I said in a recent column, uh, you know, th th that was a period that was jobless, foodless, and hopeless for a lot of Cubans. But I have to say that the, the degree of desperation that you're hearing from Cubans when they arrive now is even worse in many ways. It's not only foodless, jobless, and hopeless, it's electricity-less, you know. Uh, so many things uh, that just are missing in, in life in Cuba now because the economy is, uh, I think, at, has, has slipped into an abyss that we didn't even see perhaps in the 1990s uh, because the pandemic all but erased Cuba's most important economic tourism sector, economy. tourism. Mm -hmm. uh, the Trump era uh, sanctions that were reestablished by President Trump have, have really had a, a, a tightening of the screws effect on the economy. And plus, because the economy is in such a shambles, that, as it always does in Cuba, raises the level of repression on, on the part of the government. And that's an added uh, factor that's fueling uh, the... the uh, now, when, when it comes to Haiti, uh, I think we're all acknowledging at this point, especially after we just saw the last uh, elected officials, you know, uh, period expire in Haiti, uh, we're all in agreement that the country right now is essentially a failed state. Not only a failed state, but a state, as Jepsi was, was, was mentioning before, that is all, uh, but, you know, that, that is de facto governed by violent gangs right. today. As, as, I, as I said in the podcast, the problem with Cuba is the government's too strong. The problem in Haiti right now is there where is, is the no, government. Right. <laughs> um, Jorge, I want to I ask you, um, historically, Cuban-Americans have somewhat split in regards to recent arrivals, depending on when they came um, to, to the U.S. Um, for example, there was a lot of resentment uh, in 1980. The people who came in the Marielle Boatlift, a lot of them were not super welcomed with, welcome, with open arms. Later, when some of them were threatened with deportation, there was a lot of solidarity that, that built around them, but it took a while. What are Cuban-American families thinking and, and saying about this really sharp rise in, in Cuban migration we're seeing right now? Well, I think, as you suggested, uh, Cuban-Americans are already torn about this issue. They have been torn for a long time. And I think uh, Marielle in 1980 was a turning point in which uh, point of the, the date of departure from Cuba became a sign of social status. So if you came before 1980, you were expected to be middle, upper class, better educated, white, et cetera. If you came afterwards, you would be part of a different group. Uh, and that, of course, had to do a lot with the way uh, the Marielle Exodus was handled first by the Cuban government and later by the U.S. media. And, of course, Scarface, for example, that uh, famous image of the ruthless uh, mafia uh, thug 
uh, Tony Montana, is still with us. There's a very strong image. It's probably the most uh, widespread image of what a Cuban exile is supposed to be like. Of course, it's a stereotype, and only a few people, perhaps, those who were convicted criminals, uh, either here in Cuba or in the U.S., would fit that stereotype. And so since then, I think since the 1980, there has been, uh, because of the different waves uh, of migrants and the different characteristics of each wave, there has been some tension between uh, one group and the other. And I think right now, with the current wave, there's a sense uh, among the uh, earlier refugees uh, from the 1960s and 70s that the ones who are coming in here are not so much refugees, that they're not coming for political reasons, but they're actually more like economic immigrants. And of course, there's a whole discussion as to what degree of political and economic motivation drives them the way. I think it's a mixture of both, and it's almost impossible to throw the line between one and the other. Something I want us, us to talk about for a little bit is the, you know, the two sides of the equation is uh, the, the domestic policy problem of the, the imagery of having a border that's out of control, and the other part is the foreign policy part of the equation. Um, our colleague here at WLRN, Wilkin Brutus, recently spoke with Democratic Congresswoman Sheila Sherfalis McCormick, the Haitian American who represents parts of Broward and Palm Beach County. Uh, and she spoke about why she says US foreign policy is actually at the center of this migration crisis. Let's listen. If we're really gonna deal with this migration problem, if we're really gonna deal with our borders, it really starts with being a good neighbor. And being a good neighbor means that we have to help anybody who's surrounding us um, get to that place of security. Tim, starting with you, um, do you see any signs that the U.S. is starting to primarily treat this as a foreign policy problem? Yes and no. On the one hand, I, I do think this crisis has elevated, and, and the Biden administration has acknowledged that it has elevated uh, the idea that immigration policy is less domestic policy than it is foreign policy. And I've always, as a, as a journalist, I've always believed that immigration policy is foremost foreign policy. This idea that we have to confront illegal migration at its source instead of at the border. And I, th I think the Biden administration, as I said, has acknowledged that. Uh, if you listen to Secretary of State Blinken and any of the speeches he gives when he travels in Latin America these days, he always mentions immigration as the underpinning these days of whatever the Biden administration is going to be doing foreign policy-wise in the region. Now, whether or not they're actually following through with that, for example, we were supposed to see a big $4 billion project in the Northern Triangle of Central America that was designed specifically to keep Central Americans from wanting to leave, improve their economic and social conditions, et cetera, it really hasn't materialized. Same thing, in, I think, in Haiti. We've got this dilemma right now where um, we have to do something. Now, whether it's uh, the Biden administration becoming more proactive in helping this civil society interim government that I think Jepsi mentioned uh, before, or whether it means we do something to put police or even military boots on the ground in Haiti to neutralize these gangs that have ruined life in that country. I'm just not seeing you know, the Biden administration follow through on, on things like that that addresses, you know, as you were saying before, the push factors. And Jorge, the, to, to come to you on, because the, the Cuban side of the equation on this one is actually really tricky because the Biden administration over the last couple of weeks has started talks with the Cuban government. 
Um, and that, you know, the Biden administration is almost in a box because if they engage with Cuba because of migration, they're criticized here for appeasing the dictatorship, recognizing them, et cetera. And then if they don't, they're criticized for you lost control of the border. <laughs> I mean, what can, what is the South Florida community in particular have an appetite for in regards to this? Well, there's a couple of questions in there, but let me see if I can answer them separately. Uh, the, the last one, I think we know uh, quite a lot about because uh, FIU does uh, a poll every two years or so. I'm, I'm sure you're familiar with it, the FIU Cuba poll directed by Guillermo Grenier, which actually asks uh, Cuban Americans in, in Miami what they think about U.S. Cuba policy. Uh, if you look at uh, the last several years, you see some changes and some constants throughout the years. In general, I would say that Cuban Americans want to see uh, as much engagement as possible with Cuba civil society, not with the government. So for example, sending remittances is very popular, uh, allowing Cuban Americans to travel back home to visit relatives, very popular. Lately, investing in the self-employment sector, I don't know, Tim with has reported on. Yeah, the cuenta propistas, that's extremely popular. However, in the last few years, especially during the Trump administration, we've seen a, a toughening of the hard uh, line policies. And so for example, during the Obama administration, there had been uh, majority support for removing the embargo. Now that's gone back to majority support for retaining the embargo and putting maximum pressure, as the Trump administration liked to say. So it's, on the one hand, very tough with the government. On the other hand, trying to, for humanitarian reasons, and trying to help the Cuban uh, people themselves. It's kind of a fine needle. Very fine. That's exactly the way to put it. The, the Biden administration has to find a way to thread that needle between applying that maximum pressure on the state, on the regime, as Jorge mentions, but also finding ways to do things like invest in the Quinta Propistas, these private entrepreneurs who can make a good living independent of the regime's influence and, and, and by so doing help keep Cubans on the island instead of desperately coming here. At the same time, between those two they extremes. have to engage with the government because the Coast Guard just last week said they, they caught almost a thousand Cubans coming by sea and then they brought them back to Cuba. Cuba right. has to agree to take them. That's right. They have to, to come to some agreement. And they recently the did government. agree to, right. to, to right. start right. taking And it's them revealing back that the only issue until last week that the two governments had uh, sat down to talk about was migration because it is the critical issue. Now, uh, apparently, there has been some conversation going on in terms of security and, and other law enforcement agencies, uh, human trafficking, for example. We don't know what that will lead to. But clearly, since the Biden administration took over, it's been migration that has led these conversations with the Cuban government. And Tim, um, you know, as we talked about in the podcast, the, the Cold War used to be the, the big frame between U.S.-Cuba relations. President Obama said, you know, the Cold War is over. <laughs> is the Cold War over or is this still the thing that's, that's driving the relationship in all ways, but migration is one of them? The Cold War is never over in Miami. <laughs> we know that, uh, I think. Uh, that, that, that's, uh, that's, that's a misapprehension. Um, but no, I think, I think one of the things we have to keep in mind is that we do have to engage even you know, the most nefarious regimes like Cuba's, like Nicaragua's, because immigration is and always has been one of the big pieces of leverage that these regimes hold over the United States. You wanna have an embargo on Cuba? Great, we're gonna, you know, whenever we want to, we're gonna send droves of migrants that you're gonna have to deal with. 
why did a couple years ago Daniel Ortega, the dictator in Nicaragua, decide to suddenly let Cubans come to Nicaragua without having to have a visa? It was so that he could stick his finger in the United States eye by letting so many Cubans just come through Nicaragua instead of having to go through the Darien jungle, as you mentioned earlier. Right to fast track them up to the U.S.-Mexico border to irritate us. And Senator Marco Rubio, Florida senator, did say Cuba and Nicaragua, they're going to stick their, poke their finger in the eye. Yeah, and I think that actually goes back to the Trump administration where uh, the three countries, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and Cuba, were put together in the same uh, category. I forget the exact phrasing. Uh, the troika of tyranny. There you go. Yeah. And so the, the whole policy was, under the Trump administration, precisely to put as much pressure on all three countries, especially Venezuela at that time, so that they would be, there would be change. Of course, that policy did not uh, produce that kind of, of change, regime change, but it did make life more miserable, especially yeah. uh, for people in Cuba. And uh, now we're seeing the result of that. Unfortunately, we're going to have to leave it there. Uh, Tim Paget is the America's editor at WLRN, and also joining us was Dr. Jorge Duani, the director of the FIU's Cuban Research Institute. Tim and Jorge, thank you so much for coming on. Thank, thank you. you, and yeah. congratulations on the great podcast. <laughs> thank you, thank you. And that'll do it for our special live edition of WLRN's podcast, Attention by Design. It's produced by Denise Royal and Natu Tue. Helen Acevedo provided production support. Our engagement editor is Katie Cohen. Sergio Bustos is our vice president of news. Our interim managing editor is Katie Munoz. Jessica Bakeman is a senior editor for news. Mateo Sanchez is digital editor. The vice president of radio and the show's technical supervisor is Peter J. Mayers. Sherilyn Cabrera and Paul Namfi helped with translations. Doug Peterson is WLRN's vice president for engineering. Michael Anderson is the director of production services. We want to give a special thanks today to everyone at WLRN-TV Channel 17 who helped with today's live streaming. The Detention by Design podcast was made possible with funding from the Shepherd Broad Foundation. And this program wouldn't have been possible without your support, the general public. Thank you so much. I'm Danny Rivero. Thank you so much for joining us today. Public Media.